Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Matthew Helmers. He's the director of the Iowa Nutrient Research Center. He's at Iowa State University of Science and Technology. And we're going to talk about what's called uh, watershed hydrology. So, Matthew, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing doing well today. Yeah, tell me about what you study. What is uh, watershed hydrology about? Yeah, so I study kind of how water uh, moves across our landscape. Most of my work is, is in the agricultural areas of the Midwest. And so we look at you know, how much uh, water falls and then where does that water go? Does it go in runoff, direct runoff to our streams? Does that water move subsurface? And then if some of that water moves subsurface, we have a lot of artificial subsurface drainage or sometimes called tile drainage in the Midwest that a fair bit of that water that moves into the soil, uh, moves through the soil, is then exported to the stream with that with that tile drainage. So I guess I study how water moves across our agricultural landscapes and then what, what that water then carries with it. Yeah, what is a watershed, first of all? Or what are some, com- you know, we'll answer that. And what are some other common water features that have names people may not be familiar with. Yeah, that's a great, great, uh, great way to start. And a watershed, uh, by definition, is an area of land that drains to a common point. So, you know, in the area that I work in Iowa, we're part of the Mississippi River Basin watershed. And so the water that that falls in Iowa that moves to our stream ultimately goes to the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico. But then uh, for, you know, for individuals, wherever they live, there's going to be smaller streams that they're part of those watersheds. So, for example, here at Iowa State University, we're at the confluence of of two streams, the Iowa Creek and the Skunk River. And so we're part of either, depending where you are in town, you're either part of the Iowa Creek watershed. So all the land, you know, in that area drains to the Iowa Creek or in another area, all the the land drains to the Skunk River. And then within a, an area where waterfalls, um, I mean, from seeing a few videos from different people online, I guess the highest point of the watershed area, the area, the piece of land that you're working with is the most important, or maybe very, at least very important because it flows downhill from there. Um, so what, I don't know, like, do you, do you focus on helping people set up structures to retain water on their land? Or like, what's the focus of your study? Yeah, so a, a little bit of both. So we we do look a lot at how we can implement practices that maybe slow the water down, because if we can slow that water down, we can infiltrate it into the soil uh, that may provide more water for, for the crop production. But also, if that water is, is moving slower across the land, it has less opportunity to carry sediment and other pollutants with it. So uh, yeah, I work with with farmers a fair bit to see, you know, what structures or practices they might put on their land to kind of slow that water down, you know, as it moves from the higher ground down toward the stream. So what are some of the uh, the scientific questions you're trying to answer right now? Is there particular watersheds or areas that you're characterizing or like, what are you working on? 
So I work kind of across Iowa and we have a, a you know, um, kind of field scale watershed. So even a, even in a specific agricultural field is a really small watershed because all that land drains to a common point. So some of the things we're looking at, one is, you know, we're looking at if we put prairie strips within that watershed, can we slow that water flow down and slow the, the, the pollutant movement off the land? So we have active research where we've been studying that on, on a number of farmers' fields across the state and, and measuring. We have specific measuring devices that we have out there to, to quantify how much water is leaving that small watershed and then what the quality of that, that water is. Another practice that we're doing kind of at kind of starting at that at that watershed scale is can we capture some of that water and store it and use that for um, supplemental irrigation for the crop so in this case we're we're kind of uh, capturing some of that drainage water or surface water water runoff from the watershed and then using it uh, to to provide some irrigation for for the crop production so when water runs across uh, different features um does it become, I mean, so what, what kind of land features contaminate water and what kind of land features or subground features improve the quality of water? That's a good, good question. So when, when water falls on the land surface, we can get splash uh, and detachment of uh, particulates, sediment. And then depending on how fast that water is moving, that water can carry that with it. And so then we would have, we might have pollutants that are attached to that sediment. Uh, we could also have that that water, you know, there's some water soluble pollutants in it as well that are carried off. So things we're concerned about would be uh, sediment in our runoff. We might be concerned about phosphorus in that runoff and maybe even dissolved uh, phosphorus or nitrogen in that water as well. So certainly as that water falls on the, on the land surface, could detach some of those particles and we get that runoff and then that that moves it down. So we're looking at things to help with that, where we try to keep that soil covered a greater percentage of the year, whether that's because if we have something protecting that, we can dissipate that raindrop energy and reduce some of that, that uh, runoff that we have. So we're looking at things like residue management, things like, like cover crops. And then if we have these prairie strips in place, one of the things they can do is, you know, there's, there's, stem sticking up above the ground. And so that makes for kind of a more tortuous path for water to flow downstream. And so it kind of, it slows that water down so it can drop out some of those, those particulates that might be in that water. So does water have enough energy to bludgeon crops and hurt them? It, it, it could. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, so, so you definitely see, you know, when we get really heavy rainfall events and we get water you know, tending to channelize in a field, you can see crops get get bent over, laid over by by that flowing water. Certainly, we have something called we see a lot of grass waterways that may be protecting those areas where we have concentrated flow, and we'll have grass in there. And when we get heavy water flow through there, there's enough you know energy with that water that it'll lay that grass right over and just flow over the top of the grass so so certainly in cases when we get a lot of water flow uh we could see you know impact on our on our crop production because we might uh, we might wash away some of those crops or or knock them right over well what about raindrops are they do they have enough kinetic energy to smash plants or distort them or is it more the flowing of the water it i would say more flowing of the water certainly it's a i would say we're generally not concerned about that raindrop energy on the plants. 
unless it comes really intense rain when those plants are very small, you know, and very, very susceptible to to just kind of coming through the ground surface, you could see maybe some impact, but that would that would probably be the only time and only if we have really intense intense rainfall events on a very kind of small seedling of a plant that we have out there. Okay. And then are there charts of like infiltration times? Let's say if water is falling on sand or clay yeah. or silt or it, things like that? Yeah, th- there is. I mean, kind of if we look at at some of the um, USDA Natural Resources Conservation Services, they have soil survey information and they have some estimates of what might be permeability or water movement through the soils of different soils. And so, you know, sandy soil, that water probably can move through it faster than a, than a clay soil. I would also say, though, that the management of those soils also makes a difference. Not only the, you know, kind of the parent material or soil, soil uh, structure or soil texture that we have, but also, you know, if if it's a system that maybe has a lot of tillage and a lot of traffic that goes over that, you know, it may be such that we've decreased the soil structure so that water doesn't move into that soil as fast. So some of the things that we we like to look at are, you know, if we can reduce how much disturbance we have to that soil, we can build up uh, that soil structure so that we can infiltrate more water, you know, irregardless of of whether it's a sand or a clay or or a silt. But some of that, some of the practices that we do can also help help increase the amount of water that that infiltrates and moves moves into the soil. So we're trying to work a lot on on that, trying to understand the the impact of various practices. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Have you characterized some of them like, um, tilled soil versus a no-till soil you know i I would guess no-till over time would allow more structures of the soil to form i mean how much does it change the infiltration rate or the residence rate you know that it stays the retention rate it's really tough to to say exactly how much but we definitely do see you know when when we have that no-till we'll get more preferential flow you know Earthworm burrow or you know earthworm uh, kind of channels that may be there, old uh, decayed root uh, system. So you know it, the thing is is that it's really really variable. But in general, we you know we would we'd say we see an improvement in how much water can can move into the soil when we get something like like no-till, uh, where we have those you know as I said those earthworm channels or those decayed root channels. So what are some um... I don't know, what are some puzzles that you're trying to solve right now with your research as it relates to water? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things I guess, you know, we're we're trying to solve in a way is and look at is, you know, if we do some some practices that improve that soil structure, like no-till, maybe cover crops, that over time, you know, perhaps build organic matter, could that help us have a more resilient 
system out there such that, you know, we hold more water in that soil that then is available for crop production. And so a lot of the things, you know, the, many of the things that we're kind of looking at now from a hydrology is, is how do we have a more resilient uh, system that is, you know, more equipped to deal with kind of sp- spikes or dips in precipitation, whether that's, you know, heavy rainfall, can we make sure that our system's resilient to, to infiltrate that water? And then on the other side, if we have, you know, dry conditions, can we um, have a soil system that stores as much water as possible so that it is there for, for crop production? So what are, I mean, what are some of the challenges in regards to that? That's like an overview, but um, any specifics that, uh, that comes to mind? So I I think that, you know, one of those is, you know, thinking about um, we, a lot of our work is on how do we get adoption of these practices. So, you know, some of these are, you know, there's fair bit of science that that there's some you know, long-term benefits of these practices, but we work a lot with how do we, you know, how do we work with farmers or other stakeholders on increasing the implementation of these practices. Uh, Many of these practices have been around a long time, but we still have a long way to go to get more of them on our land. Uh, And so that's that's where a lot of our, uh, we do a lot of work with uh, trying to educate people about those, still trying to document the benefits that we might see certain parts of Iowa so that, you know, those landowners uh, have a good good feeling on uh, that, they've seen information that is similar to the, the landscape that they farm on. Have you seen that um, the temperature of the rain or the pH affects infiltration or crops very much? Um, you know, if you have rain, like I'm in Texas, so we do get winter rain. I wonder if it's any different from summer rain or spring rain, again, in pH and temperature, and if it has much of an effect. A good question. And I've not, I've not seen that specifically studied in Iowa. And so I, um, you know, certainly, the temperature impacts the viscosity of the water. So, you know, there might be some potential. One of the things, you know, that that we have it, with winter rains that, you know, is kind of maybe different in the upper Midwest because we have had some winter rains. I still remember one year on Christmas Day that could hardly see across across the yard where my family's at in Northwest Iowa. It was raining so hard, but that was on frozen soils. And so in that case, you know, there really wasn't an ability to infiltrate that water because the soil was frozen. You know, there's ice formation and frozen soil. And so all of that went went to runoff in, in that case. So that would be one thing that we, you know, maybe not the temperature of the rainfall impacting it as much, but, uh, you know, in the upper Midwest, when we get those frozen soil conditions and then maybe get, uh, you know, a rain on that, uh, that could really impact how much water, you know, what percent of that rainfall that we get as runoff. Uh, can you hear me okay? It went out for one second. Yep, I could. Yeah, no, I can, um, I can still hear you now. I don't know if this is at all practical, but what if you put up a very porous canvas over your fields? But the goal of which is when it rains, the water would splash on it, lose some of its kinetic velocity, and kind of then end up dripping off the bottom of it onto the plants. Would that, would that do anything? Would that help? Would that blunt the effects of, uh, let's say, a super heavy rain? It, it certainly it certainly could. It's just, you know, we have 24 million acres of corn and beans in the state of Iowa. So, you know, oh, putting something right. above that is probably not, not too feasible. But, uh, you know, that certainly certainly is something that, uh, yeah, in, any way we can dissipate that raindrop energy. I think that's why, you know, having that we've seen some we've we have research that has 
we have runoff over a number of years. And in a year when we got intense rainfall event earlier in the cropping season, we saw a lot more sediment loss than even a more intense precipitation event in say August when we had a full crop canopy. So when we get that full crop canopy, either corn or soybeans, that can do a pretty good job of dissipating that raindrop energy before it hits hits the soil. So it almost in a sense is acting as a little bit of a, of a, a canopy there. But one of our challenges is that uh, we need that, that canopy or protection in the spring and the fall when maybe we don't have as much uh, of a growing crop out there throughout much of the Midwest. Hmm, interesting, okay. So what are some of like the, the biggest, trickiest issues that, that people or farmers are facing in regards to water and hydrology? Yeah, I I think um I think that you know the last couple years we have had some dry summers. And so, you know, and it's kind of coming off of, you know, the previous 10 when we had a lot of wet conditions. So I think farmers are having to deal with you know, the wetter wets and the drier dries. And so that's that's kind of why we've gotten a bit more interest in this concept of kind of recycling water, drainage water recycling, because we might be able to store some of that water that's flowing off the land during high flow events and then use it for time periods when it's dry, like later in the summer. So, you know, I think that, you know, right now, different than some areas where we have crop production, kind of in Iowa and across a lot of the upper Midwest, it's a rain-fed system, and so farmers are are dependent upon what falls from the sky. And so, you know, I think that there maybe is more interest in looking at how we might be able to store some water and use that if we if we need it for crop production later in the season. Hmm, okay, very good. Are there any new um, innovations that are maybe not fully tested or not fully in use that are showing promise to help farmers? I do think it's that last one, that drainage water recycling, because, you know, that's really not been used. I always make an analogy. It's a little bit of like a rain barrel that many of us are maybe are familiar with in an urban sector uh, rain barrel on steroids, because really we're capturing that water that that would have, you know, otherwise gone downstream, you know, in our urban sectors, we might, it might be going to the storm sewer in the agricultural system, it might be going downstream, and then we're storing it and using it for that, that supplemental irrigation. Now we can engineer that, you know, I'm, I'm very confident to, as an ag engineer, we can engineer that system to store that water and use it for supplemental irrigation. But our real questions are, you know, what are the economics of that? How much does it cost? How much water do we need to consistently store uh, to put back on our land to enhance the crop production? So that's a really active area of of research with with my group and certainly with many colleagues of mine across uh, land-grant universities in the upper Midwest. Hmm, okay. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go to, to, you know, to see the types of things you work on and to look at the issues that you're, you're working on? Yeah, I think uh, a, a couple a couple ways. One is the Iowa Nutrient Research Center. We have a, a water quality research map there that um, highlights a lot of the, the projects I'm involved with specifically, but also projects that many colleagues at Iowa State, University of Iowa, and University of Northern Iowa are involved with. So that would give a good idea of the breadth of, of the type of work that, that we're looking at. Uh, also, I collaborate with an extension program here, the Iowa Learning Farms program, and we do 
uh, weekly webinars and uh, frequent virtual field days. Uh, and those videos of those archived webinars and virtual field days are available online. And so you can hear from other experts about many of these uh, types of practices that, that I've mentioned as we've gone along. Yeah, one thing I forgot to ask you about is retention ponds. And again, more about this water recycling issue. But first, um, you know, it, the hydrology you work with, um, are farmers encouraged to use or set up retention ponds? Is that a, you know, a low-cost way, let's say, of uh, once you dig it, of storing rainwater? Yeah, so that there are, um, you know, in, in many areas, uh, people will put in ponds, retention ponds, you know, maybe certain areas for that have been put in uh, specifically maybe to trap some sediment in the past, uh, maybe not as much of thinking for irrigation for crop production, but they might be more for animal watering uh, or for reducing sediment, downstream sediment delivery. So, um, you know, historically, there's been a lot of uh, sediment retention ponds um, that have been put in, in, you know, in many areas of the Midwest. Uh, but now this, you know, this concept of using maybe some of that water storage uh, to put back on the land is is a little bit newer, but uh, you know, especially the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service kind of has a history of putting in you know retention ponds uh, in many areas for kind of multiple different objectives, whether that be reducing downstream sediment delivery, uh, maybe storing some water on the landscape that might be used for for livestock water, or just reduce the flashiness. So we if we go back to that hydrology system, those retention ponds can reduce some of the flashiness. Uh, of our of the water leaving the land, if we can reduce the flashiness, we may be able to reduce the stream power and reduce some of the erosion uh, that might happen within our stream beds and banks as well. Oh, hey, can you hear me? I lost you for a yep. quick second. Yep. I'm sorry. Nope. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I was thinking about uh, organic versus non-organic farmers. Um, I would see a complication could be, you know, if they use pesticides, uh, herbicides, etc. Any retention pond that you have, I would think over time would have more and more of the stuff in it and become more and more toxic. Or if you're going to recycle your, you know, the rainwater, the stuff that's washed through the crops, again, if it picks up all these pesticides and everything, you would need to treat it before reintroducing it because then you might get an overload of these chemicals and just kill the crop. Yeah. So that is that, you know, that that is a good question and and in something we need to to continue to look at. You know, one of the things that I would say is um, you know, there probably is some outflow for these systems. So it's not, you know, it's not like we are um, reusing that water back onto the crops multiple times, perhaps. Uh, so, so we, sh you know, we might not get as much of a buildup uh, as we might if it was, you know, just constantly, constantly reused. Um, and then, you know, another thing is that those, those concentrations that leach through the soil of some of these pesticides may be pretty low that they're, you know, still put on at a, at a very uh, low rate. But certainly from a, if an organic producer was using that for, for the water and they were getting water from other areas, maybe something that they would, would have to look at a little bit. You know, we're just kind of, as I said, getting started with this drainage water recycling. And so this is bringing up some, some good questions that we would, we would need to make sure we're evaluating as well, that we don't get a, a buildup over time. Uh, there have been questions about salt content as well. So we're doing some kind of baseline sampling of salt content in the soils to make sure we aren't getting a buildup of, of that out in these fields where we're using the supplemental irrigation water. 
Um, when a farm has runoff, what does that look like? Um, is it is it observable the runoff, or is it hidden? It just kind of percolates yeah. through the land and the grasses. Yeah, that, great question. And it'd be a bit of both. You know, we would have direct surface runoff running right off of our fields in some cases. That could look pretty clean. Uh, you know, pretty clean water, uh, depending on what was out in that field, or it could look very discolored, you know, have a lot of soil particles in there. So it could look very brown in some cases, but there's also a lot of water movement that moves below the soil that we don't see that either moves, you know, just uh, below the ground and then laterally to the stream or to a, a aquifer below ground, or might be intercepted as I talked about before with that tile line that then you might see a pipe that is, you know, that you see water coming out right into the stream. Now that may look pretty clear because that water has, has gone through the soil. So it, it looks very clear, but it may have quite a bit of nitrate nitrogen in it, which is certainly what we see, but you can kind of see water leave our agricultural fields in all different ways, both in, you know, you can see it happening, running right off the surface, or, or it's unseen moving below ground both ways. Do you know anyone that's a, like a runoff chemist where they look at what's in the runoff, you know, from various farms? If there's microplastics, if there's, you know, levels of pesticides, herbicides, other unusual yeah. either contaminants or organic material is interesting. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So, you know, my group uh, more looks at the the sediment and nutrients that are in that. We have not looked, at least since I've been at Iowa State in 20. 2003, we haven't looked as much at, uh, haven't not had funding to look as much at the pesticides or herbicides that come off or the microplastics. But uh, Dana Colpin is a scientist with the U.S. Uh, Geological Survey in, uh, in Iowa City, and he's done some work in monitoring streams and looking at, at some of these, you know, PFAS and uh, some other things uh, that, that may be in our, in our water as well. So, um, I would say USGS is a good source information for maybe some of those emerging contaminants as well. Okay. Well, very good. Um, anything else that uh, you wanted to discuss that I haven't brought up? I think we covered a lot with, you know, with hydrology. It was a good call. But anything else? Yep. Nope. Not that I can think of. Hopefully that provides a little bit of, of what you were looking for and, and a little bit of perspective from, from uh, the middle U.S. in agricultural land. Okay, and for people that are, again, looking for more info, they can look up Matt Helmers, H-E-L-M-E-R-S. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Matt Helmers at Iowa State University. Great, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard, for, for inviting me. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.